And in fact, the only way living standards get higher over time is that. It's productivity gains. It's efficiency gains. So that a day's work gets you more light, more food. That's the way everybody can have more money, which to me is really the big exciting idea in economics, right? Which is not intuitive, almost counterintuitive, which is the pie can get bigger. You know, I feel like we think Oh, if one person's getting more, somebody else is getting less. Well, they got to be taking it from somebody. That rich person must have screwed over some poor person, but that doesn't have to be true. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. I'm happy you're here. This is episode 139. I don't care what the counter on your podcast app says. This is episode, discreet episode 139, unique episode 139. I keep the count. I knock. It's 139. And my guest for 139 is a gentleman named Jacob Goldstein, who is the author of Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing. And when I start talking to him, and when he starts talking, you're going to be like, wait a minute, I recognize this guy's voice. Of course you do. Because he is the former co-host of NPR's hit business show, Planet Money, where he worked for over a decade. Well, he's now at Pushkin Industries, that their place with Malcolm Gladwell, and he's producing a podcast called What's Your Problem?, in which he explores how company founders solve consumers' problems, whether or not the consumer even knows he has that problem, and what problems they run into themselves along the way in trying to solve those consumer problems. On today's show, we tackle many things. One of my favorite things we talk about is why Ira Glass of This American Life called Jacob's book topic the most stoner question of all time, how cash transactions worked in the United States before we had the U.S. dollar bills, y'all, why you making more money doesn't mean someone else will make less. How working at Pushkin is different than working at NPR on the Wall Street Journal. We talk a little bit about the future of journalism. And Jacob discloses, this is a scoop here, folks. Jacob discloses the name of the very first compact disc he ever bought. I can't wait to share this conversation with you. Before I do, I want to say hello and welcome to the new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group on Facebook. Yes, There is this thing called Facebook, and on it, there is such a thing as the Crazy Money Listeners Group. Here are some of those new members. Ron Snarsky. Ron, great to meet you at the Joe Saul Seahigh meetup at the uh, local brewery here in Atlanta last week. Joe will be our guest next week. You know him as founder and host of the Stacking Benjamins podcast. We'll be discussing his new book, Stacked. Uh, He stayed here at my house last week. He stayed right here in this room where I'm recording this episode. This is the guest room slash world headquarters of Crazy Money Podcast. More new members of the Crazy Money Listeners Group. Ellis Ollinger. Yes, that's my cousin. Technically, my dad's cousin's son, but Ellis is a great dude. He's been listening for a long time, and I sure appreciate his support. Hercules Mendoza. Yes, Hercules Mendoza. Maybe the greatest name I've ever heard of all time. Although, I did recently learn of a guy named Gunny Scarfo. Gunny Scarfo. What a great name that is. But he's not in the Crazy Money Listeners Group. You should be. You know who is? Melinda Hammer. Chip Campbell. Jacoby or Jacoby Rice, sorry, Catherine Marchand, Seth Jones, and my old friend from Rhodes College, Lee Colquitt Schaffler. She wasn't Schaffler back then, but we know who you are. We keep track of you, Lee. Thanks for listening. Thanks for joining. Thanks for participating in the discussion on the Crazy Money Listeners podcast group on the Facebook. Let me tell you a little bit more about Jacob Goldstein. He is a former staff writer at the Wall Street Journal, the Miami Herald, and Bozeman Daily Chronicle. His work has appeared on This American Life, Morning Edition, and in the New York Times Magazine. He is a husband and a father of two. He spoke with me from a soundproof closet in Brooklyn, USA. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jacob Goldstein. Jacob Goldstein, welcome to Crazy Money. Hi, thanks for having me. 
Jacob, eight months ago, after 11 years as the host of Planet Money, you left NPR to join Pushkin Industries. What drove that decision? Well, I wanted to start a new show, in short. I'm starting this new show called What's Your Problem? It's an interview show where I'm talking to people about, really about technology and business. And in particular, like what is exciting to me, the reason I left, the reason I'm starting this new show is this idea of the frontier, right? The idea of talking to people who are like out at the technological frontier, not in an academic way, but in a practical, like we got to make a business out of this thing nobody knows how to do way. So what are you trying to get at by talking to these people on the frontier? What is it you want to know about what they're up to or how they change the world? The specific kind of nerdy stuff, right? Like the idea behind the name, what's your problem, is like, what's the thing you don't know how to do yet, right? So like, I don't know, I give you a lot of different examples. One that comes to mind, I talked to Luis Von Ahn, the guy who started Duolingo. Before that, he actually invented the I am not a robot captcha test. He's sort of <laughs> apologetic about that. Right. But Duolingo is great, right? It's this app, tens of millions of people use it. It's free, you can learn language on it. But he was very candid in our interview that like, there is a thing that they can't do yet, right? If you really want to teach somebody how to speak a language, you need to engage them in a spontaneous conversation in the language that they're learning, right? And it turns out people don't want to just like talk to some rando actual person on their phone. What they want is to like talk with a chatbot. If you use Duolingo, it's just you're just interacting with the phone. And Luis's problem, Duolingo's problem is AI is not yet good enough to have a chatbot that has a real spontaneous conversation, right? So that is the problem he is trying to solve. And that turns out to be this big frontier problem in AI, in natural language, is building a bot that can have a simple but real feeling conversation. So like, that is a really interesting, big, intellectual, technical question that is also a business problem for the guy running Duolingo. Do the people you're talking to know there's a problem that they're trying to solve or are they just interested in a field and then they run into problems that are keeping them from, from reaching the goal they set out to solve? I think generally they know. I mean, at some level, the purpose of any business is to solve problems, right? I mean, if you think about it a certain way, right? Like making a thing customers want is making a thing that solves a problem somebody has. And then if you were the kind of person who's always pushing further, as entrepreneurs tend to be, trying to do things nobody else is doing, you come up against new problems, right? You solve one and you're like, okay, how can we do better? How can we do more? You know, another example is I talked to this guy, Keenan Wyrobeck, who started a company called Zipline. It's a drone delivery company. And they built from scratch these drones that are now making hundreds of, of deliveries a day in Rwanda and Ghana. And they're expanding to the U.S. And his really surprising to me problem was not initially a technical problem in coming to the U.S. It was a regulatory problem. I had no idea about this, but it turns out, well, it turns out it's a little wonky, but it's good. It's worth it. In many countries in the world, including Rwanda and Ghana, planes, anything flying in the sky has to have a transponder, in it, right? So that you can tell that there's something flying in the sky. It turns out in the U.S., for sort of historical reasons and reasons of basically individual liberty slash politics, planes don't have to have transponders, right? And because planes don't have to have transponders, it's way harder to build a commercial drone delivery business in the US, right? It's a much harder technical problem to solve because suddenly now your drones have to see planes that aren't telling you they're there, right? So that's his problem. 
And that points to like a lot of interesting sort of regulatory choices the U.S. has made and like big, almost philosophical things about the way the country works. You mentioned he was in the drone delivery business in Rwanda and Ghana, but you didn't tell us what he's delivering. It's not Pop-Tarts or the new Debbie Gibson CD. What is he delivering? Blood, medical supplies. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, I think his dream is to deliver Pop-Tarts. And Debbie Gibson CD is a really dated reference. It It is. I don't know where I came up with that. I didn't Debbie Gibson. That was not pre-written, Jacob. That just... uh, uh, I like it. Informative no, it of where I am as a human being right now. I mean, now. you know, Studio. I think uh, Phil Collins' Studio was the first oh, CD I ever got. I'm going to admit a lot with that sentence. That my was the age, first one. My taste as a 14-year-old. So is it the non-obvious things that you love to learn when you talk to these people? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think a lot of the time when entrepreneurs or just people, you know, in senior positions at companies talk they naturally default to the kind of story of everything they have achieved, right? Which is understandable, but you end up hearing kind of the same thing over and over. It's the same kind of story over and over, right? The sort of entrepreneurial origin story is kind of a set piece in a generic way. And when you can get people to where they are now, right? I mean, even like in a sort of weird way socially, if I'm like at a party, I like to talk to people about what they're working on. Right. Because they know a lot about it. Unlike talking about sports or the weather or anything, I'm not going to learn anything. But if I talk to them about their job, they know more about their job than I do. And so I just like learning about the world. A, that's the simplest version. Like, I hope this show that I'm making delivers learning to people, right? They just learn about the world. It's for curious people. B, in the setting of business and, and in particular businesses that are pretty technical, because I feel like there are a lot of big ideas happening there in a pretty exciting way to anyone who is curious about the world. I mean, especially people who are curious about business, but really like, I want this show to deliver, you know, some of the things that say like a science show would deliver. Oh, now I understand more about artificial intelligence. Now I understand more about drones. Is that the reason why people love shows like how I built this for Guy Raz, the stories behind the people who built these companies and how they came up with the idea? Because some of the most incredible innovations of our lifetime were very non-obvious. You know, Facebook was a problem we didn't know we had until we had Facebook. Uber was a problem we didn't know we had. I mean, if you live in New York City, you knew taxis sucked in the 90s, but but you didn't realize there was ever going to be an alternative, right? So is it the stories and how those people came to identify the problem and fulfill the solution that's fascinating? I mean, that's part of it. The thing that I'm trying to add to that, I mean, how I built this is great. I don't mean to bring up your nemesis, no, Guy Raz. You guys are probably no, no, like, on I, the contrary, I, I, <laughs> Guy Raz is a lovely human being and his show is a great show. It I is from my heart. Yeah. The thing that I want to add, like, I don't think the world needs another one of those shows. That's a great show. The thing that I want to add is like the what's next. The show I'm trying to make is like how I built this is like the first five minutes of the show. It's like the story of what happened so far. And the real meat of it is like, what am I going to build next? What am I trying to build now? What's not working now? What do I got to figure out? Like that to me is the exciting edge, like this idea of the frontier of knowledge, really, right? It's like people who are trying to figure out how to do something that nobody knows how to do. Like that's fun. That's exciting. And they love it. What's the difference between working at a place like the Wall Street Journal, NPR, and a place like Pushkin? Now, granted, this spans, what, 20 years of your life and technology has changed greatly. But what are you able to do today that you weren't able to do over the last couple of decades? 
Wow. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I mean, I'll say one thing, you know, to go back even one step further, before I worked at the Wall Street Journal, I was a reporter at the Miami Herald. And uh, I was just a, you know, regular print reporter covering healthcare. And the journal hired me to start a blog, right? Which was like a thing then. That's it was great. 2007. What, what, 2007. Okay, right. Yeah. And so that in a way was the beginning, you know, for a newspaper reporter, that's like a weird move. And I thought, oh, well, like, I'll just use this as my ticket to the journal and I'll be like a regular newspaper reporter after a couple of years. But writing the blog was really fun. And it was sort of off to the side in a useful way. It's like I could kind of do whatever I wanted in a way that I couldn't do when I was writing for the paper. And I loved that. Because loved nobody cared about it. There was no money there and yet. Nobody there. cared. Also, there were no rules yet, right? Like newspaper stories are very formulaic. There are a lot of rules about how a story in the Wall Street Journal should work or in any newspaper. And nobody knew what a blog was. Yeah, they sort of didn't care. Uh, but I liked that. Like, I didn't particularly care about my status within the paper. You know, I wanted to do like good work that I liked. And then similarly, I went to NPR and I worked at Planet Money, which was like this little ship. You know, it was... I think Planet Money is, I think NPR's first podcast, certainly one of the early ones. And so, again, it was this sense of like, there are no rules. I mean, they're journalistic rules. We got to be accurate. We got to be fair. But like, formally, we can be silly. We can be funny. We can, you know, do a fiction show we did once. We can do whatever we want. That freedom is the thing I have gravitated to. And, you know, the fun of being at Pushkin now is it's the sort of entrepreneurial version of that, right? So I'm starting this show that I'm hosting. I'm helping other people start shows, but I'm really trying to bring this spirit of like, let's just keep making stuff up. I do feel like at this point, podcasts are kind of more familiar and more formalized and just trying to be like a little weird is, uh, <laughs> is a thing I want to hold on to, you know? Yeah, and so you have that freedom to do that at Pushkin. I do, I do. And even in little ways and in big ways, I mean, we're trying to start stuff and I just... It is interesting the way everything starts to sound the same. And then you think, okay, how can we make something that sounds different, right? Like, I'm too old to be on TikTok, but I love TikTok. And part of the thing I love about TikTok is it's super weird, right? And the rhythms are different. And it's really funny. And so, like, I've been looking at TikTok and thinking, like, how can we get that vibe and that kind of weird funny into a podcast that is, you know, also smart? Right. So that's like a dream. I don't understand TikTok either. I'm doubling down on email, Jacob. That's where I'm putting my future bets. That's not an outlier move, right? I mean, <laughs> Substack. Substack you know, is, email, that's email. basically Substack, right? Yeah, yeah, that's Substack. That's not like some wild move. That's a super mainstream, reasonable move. I find it really interesting that the same medium that destroyed journalism, you know, in the late 90s, early 2000s is now giving it its rebirth through platforms like podcasting and newsletters and Substack. What do you see happening at the levels you are in journalism? I mean, you've been in it for 20 plus years. Like what's happening to the people in it? Where do they see the opportunities? Is everybody adapt, open to adaptation? And, and are you optimistic about where we go from here? Okay, that's a big one. So Sorry, I got to learn to ask tighter questions. No, but, I like it. No, no, I like it. I like it. It just requires some pontificating to answer. But I can Please pontificate, pontificate uh, man. Come on. I mean, I think- it's good for some, like, what do technological changes mean for journalism? There are winners and losers. I think people who are really skilled at things that there is commercial demand for are in a good spot, right? So if you're like a newspaper reporter and you were writing like a finance column that's like really insightful, 
I think the future is bright for you because you could find people who will pay you to write that finance column and you can have more freedom and probably more money than you would have had at the paper. If you're already an established. Maybe even if you're not. I mean, the winners are like individuals who are really talented and, and can do a thing for which people will pay. Also, I think big journalistic institutions have come through it, I think, better than people expected, right? If you look at the New York Times, to take a salient example, 10, 12 years ago, people were like, is the Times even going to survive? And the Times managed to pivot to become a subscription-based digital product, right? And it's easy to forget now, the Times was free online for a long time, and it was, you know, ad-based, and it was like, okay, we can sell ads. But then the ad market cratered, and so they had to pivot to subscriptions, right? This is an old story now, but it's important because the Times is thriving now. So you're okay if you're the Times, right? The smaller papers, I think, are in more trouble. When I was at the Miami Herald a long time ago in the aughts, it was already in trouble, basically, right? It had survived largely on classified ads, which had been destroyed by Craigslist. It was losing money. Well, it was making less money, I should say. And I don't think metro papers, smaller papers, that I think is the loss, right? There's like really strong local reporting that was essentially funded by like classified ads. I haven't seen a replacement for that. You know, there's like philanthropy-based alternatives that people are trying, but that's the one that I haven't, I don't think anybody's solved that one yet. It is really bizarre when for a 52-year-old to be reading a newspaper article and then be asked for a donation after you read it. <laughs> that doesn't fit with the model of journalism that, that I'm familiar with. Yes. Well, when was the last time you paid for a classified ad in that paper? Blame Craig Newmark. Don't blame me. It's not my fault. Yeah, yeah. No, he knows. He knows. You know, the journalism school at the City University of New York is named for him. Is that right? Yeah. That's, yeah. Uh, did he make that donation? Yeah, yeah. That is bizarre. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a, I don't know the whole story, but it seems like he clearly just built this thing and it became this very large thing. And I don't know. I don't think of him. We're talking about the founder of Craigslist, for those of y'all yeah. who, who are not familiar with the name. But this is a guy who believed in democratization of exchange of goods, right? I mean, he wasn't in it from a profit standpoint. I don't regard him as somebody who was out for money first, right? That's right. That's right. I don't know that much about the story, but it seems to me that he didn't intend to, you know, undermine the business model of, of newspapers all around the country. And clearly, like, that business model stopped being sustainable as soon as the web took off. He just happened to be the guy who made the list, right? Like, there wouldn't be classified ads in newspapers today whether or not Craigslist existed. Right. Well, if it wasn't, sense. it would have been somebody else. If Facebook didn't exist, somebody else would have, maybe somebody would have fixed MySpace to create yeah, a real, Friendster. A real yeah, platform. Yeah. But what we're talking about is really about the dynamic nature of capitalism and markets, right? Which is the theme that comes up in your book, also the book Money, The True Story of a Made-Up Thing, which I've read and really enjoyed. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and so the theme I see is that we think with from our current perspective, from the status quo, the way we our experiences led us to view the world, that we know how markets work, that what was true yesterday will be true tomorrow. And that's absolutely not the case. That's very much the case with money as well, where we believe from our point of view that we know how money works. That's how it's always worked. And that's how it's going to work in the future. But that's not, that's absolutely not the case, is it? Yeah, it's extraordinary how much money has changed and how weird money is in general, but, but especially now, right? I mean, if you look at money divorced from gold or from metal, like that's less than a hundred years old, basically, right? Like the idea that 
paper money is just paper with no promise behind it. That idea did not really exist in a meaningful, you know, protracted way until the Great Depression. And even then, people didn't really think of it that way. So the money world we live in feels like normal. And in fact, it's weird. And it's, you know, the bigger idea is that money feels like a fact of nature, but it's not. It's this social construction that is, you know, a set of rules that people make up and agree to without really knowing that they're making them up and agreeing to them. Today's episode is brought to you by Sidecar. What is Sidecar, you ask? Well, it is the stylish, hands-free, and wearable accessory that makes traveling with hats, scarves, and clutches much easier, no matter where your adventures may take you. That's right, Paul Allender is talking about the need to travel hands-free with hats, scarves, and clutches. The three-piece Sidecar set includes the patented gold-plated Sidecar clip, an adjustable side strap, and an affixable side piece in premium leather. Most importantly... Sidecar is owned by the first lady of crazy money. That's right, my wife, Stacey Ollinger. So I can attest that it is a very cool product. And of course, I'm biased, so don't take my word for it. Take the word of premium travel magazine, Virtuoso Life, that says they are, quote, obsessed with Sidecar, close quote. When Stacey wears hers in airports, I've seen this happen, people stop her and ask her where she got it. Then she gets to say modestly, well, I'm the founder and co-owner. It's a very cool product, I promise, and it makes a perfect birthday, Easter, or Mother's Day gift. Buy one for yourself, ladies or guys. Buy one for the fashionable woman you love or the fashion-loving guy in your life. For a limited time, Crazy Money listeners can get 15% off by going to sidecarlove.com and using promo code CRAZYMONEY. That's one word. The link is in the show notes, which is type it into your browser, sidecarlove.com, promo code CRAZYMONEY. The offer is valid online only and excludes gift cards for a limited period of time. And now back to Jacob Goldstein. So I love the way that Ira Glass described your goal for the book, which was to explore the most stoner question ever. What is money? How did you come about wrestling with that question? First of all, I also love that. It's like a badge of honor, right? That I can write a <laughs> so book about great. the most stoner question ever. It's like a life Dude, goal. Dude, what's a unlocked. cookie, man? What's a cookie? What is it? We said, what, what even is the word cookie? Uh, so, I mean, the way I went about wrestling with this question, what is money, is basically telling the story, right? Is through the history of money, which is, you know, thousands of years long and really interesting and really varied. And like a series of very engaging stories that I find just fun and weird and also illuminating about the way the world works. You talk about how these stories illuminate the history of money. And one of your stories is about illumination itself. Can you share a brief version of that story and how it relates to the development of money? The history of life is an amazing story. And it's also really the big idea in that story is the big idea behind this podcast. What's your problem that I'm starting? So the story is this. There is this economist named Bill Nordhaus, who, who actually won the Nobel Prize a few years ago, who early in his career in the 90s, he decided, I'm going to figure out how much light, like artificial light, like how much it costs to light up a room. I'm going to figure out how much light costs for all of human history. I'm going to go back to like ancient Babylon and figure out how much, you know, laborers got paid and figure out how much sesame oil costs. And then he goes and he, he buys like an ancient style oil lamp and buys sesame oil at the store and gets a light meter. And so he figures out for all of history, I mean, the version of it that I used is if a typical worker spends a day's wages to light up a room, for how long can they light up that room, right? So you work a whole day, take all the money you made all day, and all you do is buy enough light 
like to be equivalent to a 60-watt bulb, 60-watt incandescent bulb. And he figures out that in ancient Babylon, a whole day's wages could only light up a room for about 10 minutes. And then he goes through all of history, basically. And, you know, all, you know, thousands of years later, it's 1800 in Europe. And it's a little better by that point. It's like an hour, right? But 1800 is the moment when the industrial revolution just gets going, right? And that is this incredible turn in human history. And frankly, like, you know, I studied liberal arts, I studied history. I didn't realize until I got to Planet Money, like what a big deal the Industrial Revolution was. I heard that phrase and I would just think like boring factories, pollution, but like in terms of raising living standards for almost everybody, not just for rich people, for almost everybody in the world, it was like the most important moment in human history. It's this moment when everything starts getting better and more efficient. And you can really see that in the history of life so that you go from 10 minutes in ancient Babylon to an hour in 1800 to like, I don't know, five hours by 1850. And then you get the light bulb and you get, you know, power plants. So that by the time Nordhaus does this study in the end of the 20th century, basically, it's one day's labor goes from, you know, 10 minutes to an hour to five hours to thousands of hours of light, right? It gets to a point where light is almost free for us now. And that is miraculous, right? That is the story of technological progress. And you could apply it to clothes or to food or to many, many things, right? The, the material wealth that we have now is extraordinary. And it is the product of lots of people solving lots of problems over time so that things get more efficient, right? And in fact, the only way living standards get higher over time is that. It's productivity gains. It's efficiency gains. So that a day's work gets you more light, more food. That's the way everybody can have more money, which to me is really the big exciting idea in economics, right? Which is not intuitive, almost counterintuitive, which is the pie can get bigger. You know, I feel like we think, oh, if one person's getting more, somebody else is getting less. Well, they got to be taking it from somebody. That rich person must have screwed over some poor person, but that doesn't have to be true. I hang out with a lot of comedians. Some of the younger ones don't have the healthiest relationship with money. And one of them said a couple of months ago, I know if I make more, somebody else makes less. And I'm like, that's absolutely untrue. False. Where does False. that come from? Where does that suspicion around money come from? Do you think? Well, I think, you know, if that was largely true until 1800, right? I think this, a zero sum mentality seems natural, right? In a world without productivity gains, that's the way it works, right? Like there's some set amount of food, there's some set amount of apples on the tree and somebody's going to get some number of apples and the more I get, the fewer you get, right? It takes a different mindset to realize, oh, maybe we could figure out a way to make the apple tree make more apples so everybody can have more apples, right? Which is what I'm interested in in this show, right? Like it's solving these problems at the frontier is what makes the pie get bigger. And I do agree with you. I think it is not intuitive. And I think historically it hasn't been the case, right? How did money empower the spread of resources? And before there was money, how did people exchange for goods and services or did they? Oh, that's a good one. So the traditional answer to that question was before there was money, there was barter, right? Which is basically people exchanging stuff. And the traditional story says, you know, that's inconvenient because if you have something I want, I also have to have something you want. And if we don't each have something the other wants, we can't trade and that's bad. So let's invent money. It's a tidy story. But what happened in the 20th century was anthropologists started going around the world looking at cultures that 
often didn't have money or what, you know, what we would recognize as money. And they never really found that, that kind of robust barter economy that the story suggested. What they found was something different. And I think ultimately more interesting. And that really tells us a lot about what money is. What they found was, you know, traditional cultures, they have a lot of, well, a lot of rules about giving and getting. Uh, sometimes it's gift giving, for example, a lot tied to marriage, right? You're familiar with like a dowry or a bride price or whatever. If you want to marry somebody, the man's family has to give the woman's family a number of cattle, or sometimes it's the other way. The woman's family has to give the men's family. Another place where there was a lot of rules about giving was around murder, kind of awesomely, right? Like if you kill somebody, there's rules like about what you have to give to the family of the person you murdered. Did you have to save up before you murdered somebody? Was that the idea that, you know, you don't murder somebody <laughs> on margin. You have to, you got to have enough in the bank you to got, cover. You got to really want it, right? That's you right. want it enough to part with six cows. Okay. So that kind of thing, those rules, those norms, that really seems to be the origin of money. And the thing that is interesting to me about that is when you look at the barter story, the barter story is very much a story of sort of money as math, money as this kind of cold atomic problem solver in this you know, market where nobody knows anybody else. But in fact, that's not what it is, right? What money arises out of is a much more social, much sort of hotter, interactive thing where everybody knows each other and there's all these rules. And that is really the way to think about money, right? Money is not just math. Money is this social invention that has all these rules and norms tied to it. What are some of the technological, historical technological shifts that really impacted the use of money and, and popularized it, necessitated it over the years? Well, paper is a big one. If you want to go way back, the Chinese invented paper and then they invented paper money around the year 1000. It was in this part of China where they used iron coins. And, you know, in really until the 20th century, the value of coins was based on the value of the metal itself. And iron wasn't worth very much. So you needed a lot of iron coins to buy anything, right? It was a bad, bad thing to use for money. You needed like a pound and a half of iron coins to buy a pound of salt. And so some merchant in Sichuan in China started giving people IOUs for all their pounds of, of iron coins, paper IOUs, you know, like a, like a coat check. This piece of paper is good for five pounds of iron coins, whatever. And then people started using those IOUs as money. Then the government was like, oh, money, I see what's going on. They got involved. And interestingly, so there was the basic technology of paper, but then paper money itself is a technology, right? It's a much more efficient way to facilitate exchange, right? One piece of paper versus pounds and pounds of coins, especially in an era when, you know, there's no cars, whatever. It's really hard to move metal around. And it turned out that this invention of paper money, this new technology of paper money was part of this real technological uh, flowering in China around this time, kind of like a proto-industrial revolution. It didn't bloom the way the later industrial revolution did, but there were, you know, cities of a million people and like restaurant scenes and new discoveries in agriculture. And it was really, and the market more generally flourished, right? It was a period when the market economy in China flourished. It had a weird end where one dynasty came, another dynasty, eventually this sort of reactionary dynasty came in and they didn't like all these markets. They didn't like this paper money. Their ideal was, you know, the kind of 
self-sustaining agricultural village, right? That sort of mythological, the real people are in the village, not these, you know, merchants who we don't trust them. And they got rid of paper money and China got poorer and paper money ceased to exist in the world for, I don't know, a couple hundred years. Like this amazing invention came and then it just disappeared. Amazing. That's wild. That really shows that the money isn't the thing itself, but money is the concept. It's the relationship. It's the trust in the document that you get that is money, that it's not a thing, but a concept. Absolutely. I mean, today, right? Like if you think of money, you probably think of whatever, a hundred dollar bill or a $20 bill, but almost all the money that exists is not that, right? It's just a number in your bank account. And there is not a $20 bill for every $20 in your bank account. It's just numbers. It's just a ledger. Okay. So related to this concept, if you would ask me before I read the book, when did the US dollar become a thing? I would have said 1789 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Would I have been right? Uh, well, it depends. The dollar bill, like we know it, no. The dollar as an idea, as a unit of account, yes. I mean, amazingly, if you go back to like the pre-Civil War America, not only was there no dollar bill as we know it, there were thousands of different kinds of dollar bills, each printed by a different bank. Like it was this crazy world where literally every bank printed different kinds of paper money. Did each state have its own bank or were there multiple banks per state? Multiple banks. So they were oh private gosh. banks. The idea of the government printing paper money was suspect. There was for a while, like in the 1820s, a national bank, a bank chartered by Congress that had a lot of power and that printed paper money. But even that was seen as too much federal power. Andrew Jackson killed that bank. So there was not even a national bank. If you wanted to go from state to state, you would have to change money and change money again. It was such a problem, you know, say you're a, a merchant running a store and somebody walks in every day, people are going to be handing you bills you've never seen before and be like, no, what? That's money. Trust me. And so there arose these guides. I'll date myself again, kind of like phone books. If you're old enough to remember a phone book that listed every bank in America and like what their money looked like. And also, you know, this is still the era when like in China, almost a thousand years earlier, the money was still a claim check, right? On the paper money, it basically always said, you can redeem this for silver. Typically it was silver. So, you know, the paper was still a stand-in for the metal. But if you held paper money from a bank that went bust, it was just paper suddenly, right? So you not only needed to know, is this a real bill? You also needed to know, is this bank legit? And these guides would not only tell you what the bills look like, but they might say, well, maybe that bank is far away or maybe it's shaky. So instead of, you know, giving people a dollar's worth of stuff for this dollar bill, just give them 95 cents worth just to give them a little haircut. So this book of money, this book of state currencies that these merchants had, it reminded me of back in the 80s, you'd go to a bar and try to use your fake ID, right? And the bouncer would pull out, you know, a book that had what every license looked like in every state. Which was a horrifically inefficient but terribly effective way to keep me out of bars in the late 80s. This was not an efficient thing. When did the U.S. dollar come along as the uniform currency for the United States, and when did it really take hold? Well, it was the Civil War, really. In a lot of ways, the Civil War was this hinge moment in American history, right? When the country went from being a bunch of different states that were sort of like different countries to being clearly one country, right? There's this idea, I don't know if it's true, but that before the Civil War, people said the United States are 
whatever. And after people said the United States is. And that was also true for money. During the Civil War, uh, to raise money, the uh, Congress, the Union, passed a series of banking laws that created a more uniform federal currency issued still by private banks, but they were national banks. And they wound up taxing the state banknotes, the thousands of kinds of paper money out of existence. So really, the Civil War is this turn where the U.S. becomes really a country. And that's true in a lot of ways that we think about, but it's also true in terms of money. Has all the writing you've done and all the thinking and producing of shows about these concepts around money and industry and markets, has it changed your relationship with money? Well, that's an interesting question. It certainly caused me to think about my relationship with money. I've historically been cheap, basically. (laughs) Uh, uh, Have you been skeptical of money? Are you a skeptic? I mean, you work for NPR, you work for Pushkin. These are not known as capitalistic-oriented institutions. Have you been a a skeptic of capitalism and markets? And has the work you've done around money changed that at all? Yeah. Yeah, it really has, actually. It really has. I grew up, my parents were not hippies, but they were kind of hippie adjacent, you know, (laughs) and and I grew up with that uh, mindset and I was skeptical of money. You know, my thing when I was in my twenties, I was sort of, you know, kind of drifting from thing to thing was like, if I didn't spend money, I could be free, basically, right? Like if I didn't need money, then I didn't have to get trapped in some job I didn't like. And I like got good at not spending money. Although I realized that that's also a kind of preoccupation with money, right? Mm. And I was skeptical, I think, of markets. And I maybe even did have a, a bit of a zero-sum mentality, assuming that you know the only way you could get more was for someone to get less, although I don't know that I thought about that that much. And I have become... Uh, less that way. Like I do believe more now in markets, like not entirely. There are lots of places where markets don't work. Sure. Of course. Lots of people are born, you know, with advantages. Other people are born with disadvantages. I'm not like a, you know, radical libertarian, but I really do believe in markets. And I mean, the core idea behind this show, what's your problem that I'm starting is this idea that businesses can solve real problems. And in particular, businesses are really good at figuring out how to do things more efficiently. And that like efficiency is is a great thing in the long run. Figuring out how to do things more efficiently is, in fact, the only way that everybody gets to be better off. Like that to me is like the great big lesson that I truly didn't know before I went to work at Planet Money. It's a big idea and it's really powerful. What ideas would you like to go back in time and explore? Like if you could talk to anybody from any entrepreneur in history, who would you like to to interview for your new Wow. I mean, Kublai Khan is not a Ooh. not an entrepreneur, but like I, I thought mean, maybe you'd go back big, to Edison, right? but, but yeah, <laughs> but why not go? You can be anybody in history. So Kublai Khan was he was the emperor of China. He was Mongol, but the Mongols conquered China. He was the emperor of China around in the 1200s. I think 23 and Me says I'm related to him, or maybe that's Genghis. I can't remember everybody. I think every, I think they just default to that. I think they tell right. everybody that, and it's probably true. So he had this moment when he made money. Uh, not be redeemable for coin. He created fiat money, basically, for for a minute in the 1200s. And that world seems so far away from here, right? And so wild. And it was this cosmopolitan world. You know, they controlled Asia and a lot was going on with money. Technically, I guess, not an entrepreneur, but I'm going to stretch your definition and say Kublai Khan. I like that. Seems fun, right? Imagine. It's just so different. It is wild to try to get your head around things like, oh, there was a time when light was the most important thing I didn't have. 
Yeah, right. And there was no way, you know, the only guys who could get light were those assholes, Elon Musk and, you know, Jeff yeah. Bezos. So like, and that time was all of history until 200 years ago. Right. That's bizarre. That is bizarre. At every night, not in the day, in the day you were fine, but every night it was really dark. So our, you know, whatever, six generations back, people just like us six generations ago couldn't even fathom, you know, having a light on, on demand. Where does money go from here? What do you think would blow us away that our grandchildren will be able to, to experience? I don't even know. I mean, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, a couple of things. One is just sort of whatever intellectually or my, my framework, I've always been more focused on the past and always felt like, like when I was young, I kind of felt like I missed the action. You know what I mean? Like I felt like, Oh, I missed the action. And I see now, you know, people who, I mean, look, I graduated from Stanford in 1995 and like, I didn't go get rich working at a dot-com company. I went to Montana, you know, like, and I realize now that the people who were next to me who went to work at tech companies realized, like, I knew the internet was going to be a big deal, but I sort of didn't care. It didn't seem that interesting to me. So I realized that I have underestimated the future and studying money made me think that more, right? What it made me realize is the world changes a lot more than anybody expects. And it happens in a kind of unpredictable way. Like, you know, this idea of punctuated equilibrium in evolution, like everything's kind of the same for a long time. And then it gets really crazy. And like everything changes a lot really fast. That's pretty much the way money works. And so I think it'll be totally different in ways we absolutely cannot predict. And I don't know what it'll look like. Your first episode of What's Your Problem is the interview with the guy who has the drone company in Rwanda and Ghana. And he talks at one point about the fact that there will be flying cars within like 20 or 30 years. Do you think your kids will have a flying car? I would guess they won't own it, but I guess it would be like, uh, you know, Uber, but flying, basically. One of the big changes, like, I think pretty clearly when you think about autonomous cars and autonomous planes is there's no need to own it if it drives itself because you'll just call it and it'll come get you. You don't need to put it anywhere. It doesn't need to sit in your driveway or on your runway. Well, the future is going to be fascinating just as the past was. And uh, Jacob Goldstein, you made me think a lot about both. The book is called Money, the True Story of a Made-Up Thing and the new podcast that comes out five days ago because this is March 22nd and the, or seven days ago because it's March 22nd. And it came out March 15th. It's called What's Your Problem? Jacob, where can our listeners find out more about you and the podcast? Well, I'm on Twitter at Jacob Goldstein. They can find the podcast at pushkin.fm. But really, as they say, wherever you get your podcasts. Wherever fine podcasts are sold. Wherever. I'm pushing to just cut that to where, wherever. They can find the podcast wherever. Wherever. Right on. It's in the ether. It's there. It'll find you. Fingers crossed. Jacob, thank you so much for your time. Uh, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thank you kindly to Jacob Goldstein for making time out of his busy Pushkin schedule to come spend time with us here at the Crazy Money Podcast. Let's jump to the takeaways. You know, the more you read about money, the more you understand that it is not, as some assert, the root of all evil. Neither is it inherently good, of course. Uh, it can be used for either good or evil. But as Jacob attested, money and markets, which are also not inherently purely good or evil either, Money and markets do create a means of mutually beneficial exchange by which, in the aggregate, in the long run, most humans' quality of life is improved. Not equally distributed, not for everyone, but the power of commerce helps make people better off in the long run. 
Secondly, life, business, media, and yes, money are not static. So just when you think we've achieved all we can achieve or that innovation has put one industry out of business, it turns out like, for example, journalism and the written word-based media products like the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, sometimes the same technology that, that set it back on its heels is the one that raises it to new heights as we see today in the current online digital subscription business. Sometimes that technology that threatened old forms of the medium, like the Metro Papers Jacob mentioned, also empowers new forms of business like Substack, which doesn't need third parties to create a direct relationship between a writer and his or her target reader. I suppose Substack has taken the place of that third-party platform, but it doesn't create an editorial wall or a hurdle over which Certain writers must leap in order to connect with the people who might find their writing as interesting as anyone. So I just find all that fascinating. And we should keep that in mind when we are making pronouncements about the death of one form of media or commerce over the other. Lastly, I don't know why Debbie Gibson is stuck in my head. She must have touched something in me emotionally, physically in 1987 or whenever she was at her peak. And I mean no disrespect whatsoever whatsoever to Miss Debbie. By the way, I just looked her up on the internet. She's looking very nice these days. She's hung in there quite well. So kudos to you, Debbie. Hope you're healthy and well and happy. I just find it interesting that she's sort of like this archetype from that time in my life. And I don't know, maybe she's she's that CD and, and that she just didn't have the the guts to throw away, like the Bare Naked Ladies CD. What do I got? I've got the Bare Naked Ladies One Week Pinch Me Extended Version Songs on my list, on my desk. I don't know what that's all about. Anyway, I always like that song, Brian Wilson. Hope you have a great day. Next week, we'll have uh, our old friend Joe Saul Seahigh from the Stacking Benjamins podcast back to talk about his new book, Stacked. In the meantime, hope you have a great week and Mike Carano, make me sound smart.